Andrew and I are going to walk through the upcoming changes to nonprofit financial reporting standards. Um, and then when we do our presentation, Nicole's going to come up and do revenue recognition. We'll take questions at the end. We'll save time for, for questions. So please save your questions. We'll do them all together at the end of the presentation. So why are we here? Well, I think a lot of you are aware. We have talked about this in past seminars as well. Um, the, new, the new standards came about because there has been no real change in the financial reporting standards in 20 years. And this was kind of a, an opportunity really to improve the, um, the usefulness of the financial statements, the, the clarity, and also um, the transparency of financial statements. And it's focused on a couple of different areas. One is looking at the net asset classes, improve the reporting and the, the net asset classifications, um, looking at um, the nonprofit's liquidity. Liquidity is a big piece of this, understanding what the liquidity really is, what are the, the cash flows offering results of not-for-profit. So this all came about as part of that, of that process. Um, I think you know part of the, the challenges was this was such a big standard, such a big undertaking. In April of 2015, an exposure draft came out. The exposure draft asked for comments um, and was a very large exposure draft. We had confidence on it, and there were so many comments in the exposure draft, they decided to kind of split the new standard into two pieces, phase one and phase two. Phase one was issued last August um, 2016. Phase two has not has not been deliberate, deliberated yet. We'll talk about that at the end, kind of what's coming up with that. So today we're kind of just focusing on phase one, um, which is really what's going to be applicable relatively soon. So I, I think the way we look at this, it, it's also an opportunity for not-for-profit to tell their financial picture. What is their story? So we advise our clients, work with our clients, tell the best, use these new standards to your benefit and really, and really tell the, the story about your operations, your finances, you really want to tell. So there are pretty much five main provisions of the new standard. Um, I'll go into this very briefly, don't want to steal Amanda's thunder, because she'll be covering these, each topic in more detail surrounding it. But as I had mentioned, the, one of the main pieces of this is liquidity from a, both a qualitative and quantitative standpoint. So I think this, as we, we find, if you look at these, these items, each aspect will impact some organizations more than others. Liquidity will impact everybody. That's something you don't disclose right now. Uh, it might be something that the organization may not think about that much right now, uh, except from a day-to-day -day standpoint. It's really an area where there's going to be more documentation of the requirements and what does that really mean to the user of the financial statements. So we'll be talking about that a little bit more later. Um, so as John had mentioned, temporary restricted net assets is not going away. However, they are changing it from three categories to, to two. So instead of having the unrestricted, the temporary restricted, and permanently restricted, Temporary and permanently restricted are being combined into one class called with donor restrictions. Unrestricted is now is calling it, being called without donor restrictions with it. So what that really means is you're collapsing it in the financial statements, but you still have to track the information internally. You still have to report this in the financial statements in the footnote disclosure. So it doesn't really change what you have to do from an overall day-to-day -day standpoint. It just means the reporting will be more streamlined. Because I think a lot of people didn't really understand what does that really mean, permanently restricted and temporarily. It's really what is re restricted. So that's kind of the category that was, has gone through there. A big item, a big change is a place and service approach. Um, that will apply to some clients, not that many. Right now, there is, this is the, where the, the consistency comes in. This has to do with when you recognize revenue received for long-lived lived asset. You receive a capital grant for property and equipment. When do you recognize that revenue? 
Um, right now, there's a couple of different ways you can do it. You can do it, you know, when you incur the, the cost with it, when it's placed in service, or you can do it over time by applying a time restriction. Right now, there's only gonna be one option, which is a place in service approach, which Amanda will be walking through in a few minutes. There's changes in underwater endowments. For those of you who aren't aware of what an underwater endowment is, that is when the market value of a restricted gift is less than the original cost, so it's underwater. Um, right now, there's a change in presentation for that, the way it's being shown. So there are, you know, we have you know, some organizations we work with have this issue, so Amanda will be walking through, through that. Um, and then the other thing they, they looked at the provisions was really the cash flow and investment re return. The good news is on the cash flow, there's no real changes in this standard. There's a little bit of a tweak if you do the direct method, which we'll talk about. And the investment return, there's some netting that you can do with that as well. So that's coming up in this standard. Um, another change which will be applicable to some organizations, not everybody, will be the functional expenses. So right now, only organizations that are considered voluntary health and welfare are required to show expenses by functional category, you know, statement of functional expenses. In the future, it's going to be required for everybody to show functional expenses by natural and functional classification. Uh, we'll talk about what that really means. It's not as much detail as you might think it's going to be. There's a couple different options with that. Um, so that will be new. That's a requirement. But the good news is the standard also gives more guidance on how costs should be allocated. As you know, the current guidance doesn't really tell you, you know, a supporting function from a direct service function, how things should be allocated. Now there's a little bit more guidance than there has been in the past. So there's a little bit more clarity with that than we have been accustomed to. So I'm sure everybody's dying to understand, figure out when does this happen, when's the effective date. So the effective date, so is for any years beginning after December 15, 2017. So what that means is if you're a calendar year file, a calendar year organization, it'll be calendar year 2018. If you're fiscal year, like a June 30, you'll be fiscal year 2019. So if you think about it, if you're a calendar year organization, we're in 2017 right now, you have to report under the new standards December 31st, 2018. It's really January that becomes effective, right? January is really your fiscal year under this new standard. So it is coming up fairly quickly for the new, the new uh, December year-end organizations. Now, you know, you, under the first year of adoption, you have to do this retroactively. So if you, could, if you do a comparative financial statements, you've got to go back a year to retroactively to show this information. Um, there could be emphasis of a matter, matter paragraph in your audit re report if there's significant changes to the financial statements, really restating numbers between categories. As an example, you might need to have this disclosure in the audit report, which is pretty standard whenever you adopt a new accounting standard. Now, there is some, there's a couple different things I want to mention with this. If you do compare the financial sta statements and you haven't done a statement of functional expenses in the past, you don't have to do that for both years. You only have to do it with the current period. So if you didn't, you know, you weren't really to health and welfare, didn't do statement of functionals, now you've got to show this de detail. You can show this detail only for, two th for the year of adoption in the third notes. Don't have to go back in two years to, to do it. And the, the liquidity, um, doc, liquidity reporting, you know, which is both qualitative and quantitative, you only have to do in the year of adoption. You don't have to go back a year. So it's only the year going forward. So there's a couple of different tweaks with that. Um, the other thing I just wanted to mention, and we'll go through this in more detail, 
there are pieces of the standard you can do without adopting the whole standard. Usually when a new standard comes out, you have to adopt the whole standard, that's it. There are, there's a couple things you can do without adopting the whole standard. So you want to think about that and you know, work with us to think about, is there certain things that might make the statements better, more useful to the users, more efficient from a reporting standpoint? We might want to do a couple, you know, one of the provisions this year and the full standard when it comes effective. So there are some options to do it that way, which Amanda will go through. We have a summary at the end as well to kind of pull it all together, what you can do early and what you can't do early. So that's kind of the kind of the big picture overview. Amanda will go into some of the more specific details right now. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Um, so Matt gave you, you know, a high-level um, overview of the provision. So what I hope to do is go into more detail and really, you know, break that down into how you know you as a CFO or whatever role you are within the organization, how you should implement that, what what you should implement, when and why, um, within your organization. So first is this concept of liquidity and liquidity management. And I know Matt used the terms qualitative and quantitative. And you know what does that mean? Um, you know, qualitative information is what, what we're going to need to disclose now is the organization's policy surrounding how you monitor your liquidity. Um, an example of that is if you are required to have an X amount of number of days of cash on hand to meet your um, you know, debts as they become due. And if you currently do not have a policy for maintaining liquidity, um, we suggest you do so because that's going to have to be put on paper in your financial statements. Uh, th there's also other um, qualitative, um, qualitative information that needs to be disclosed, and that is what other tools, financial tools, does your organization have to, um, to have a, you know, whether it be a rainy day fund, but what tools do you have and can you utilize in a case that you, do not, that you don't find yourself liquid? So an example of that is a line of credit. So that would be something that we put on paper that, you know, not only do you try to maintain, pick a number, 60 days of cash on hand, but we also have access to a line of credit um, in case that's due. Now, some quantitative information that we, that we need, now need to disclose is kind of making it very clear to the reader of the financial statements what on your balance sheet truly is available for working capital. What, it, what can I, you know, use to pay my bills? And, you know, it may be that you have... You know, you may have accounts receivable on your books, but you know, that's donor restricted. You're not collecting it for another two years. So that's just an example of in the footnotes, you would indicate that yes, you know, we have X amount of accounts receivable on hand, but not all of it is available within the 12 months from the balance sheet date. So we'll disclose what is available. Okay, so just really putting on paper numbers that are available to pay your bills. So these, are, what I provided here is just some examples of things to consider um, when assessing how liquid your organization is. There might be, like I, in my example, there might be donors who restrict um, those what are shown as assets on your balance sheet. Could be that there's external limits. Um, so just things to, so some examples to consider. And we also provided here some disclosures, some sample disclosures of what could be included in your financial statements when this um, you know, standard is applicable to your organization. I don't want to go over them in detail, um, but these materials will be, as I'm sure you all know, will be available to you. So should you want to reference what your uh, disclosures will look like, we just want to provide you with the resources to do so. This, one of, this next provision and one of the most hot items in terms of this standard is the collapsing of what was three classes of net assets down to two. Um, what used to be unrestricted, temporarily restricted, and permanently restricted is now just 
net assets without donor restriction and net assets with donor restriction. And, and like Matt said, the goal of not only this provision, but really every, every provision, provision in this ASU was um, to promote consistency of reporting because that, that was an issue. Not all nonprofit organizations were consistent with reporting temporarily restricted versus permanently restricted and so on and so forth. So this would, in, in, uh, the goal of this is to promote clarity and, and get rid of that inconsistency, okay? So now, what used to be temporarily restricted and permanently restricted will just be collapsed into one net asset category in your, in your financial statements. So for those of you that have board-designated net assets, so that would be an internal restriction from your board of directors, not external from donors, uh, there's some, you have a choice as to how you report that. It does not need to be shown on the face of the financial statements. The, the purpose of that donor restriction, but rather you can disclose that in the footnotes to the financial statements. So I, I like to give examples. So an example, let's say it's a rainy day fund. Your, your uh, board set aside a rainy day fund in case you need it to meet working capital needs. So you would disclose the amount, you, could dis you don't have to disclose the amount on the face of the financial statements, but in the notes you would disclose the amount the board of directors set aside, what's intended, what the intended use of said reserves are, as well as the process for utilizing those funds. So I think, um, you know, this might already be done. Um, I think we, you know, everyone in this room does a good job of, in their financial statements, disclosing that the board has to vote to approve, to uh, release those funds and for us to utilize those funds. So that may not be a change for anyone in this room, but in case it is, um, just want to let you know that there'll be a more robust disclosure. Now, if you want to show this, these funds uh, broken out on the face of your financial statements on your balance sheet, um, you can do that. You just could, you would reduce the level of disclosure. You wouldn't need to reduce you wouldn't need to disclose necessarily um, the purpose of said reserves because that would already be disclosed on the face. I think it will be more common to keep the more robust footnote disclosure. It keeps your statements cleaner. Well, that's a good point. A lot of times we get the question: Do we have to follow the standard? Because right now the standard is more condensed. You may be doing it for reporting right now on the face of financial statements. So you can add more detail to the face if you feel like it adds. It's better use, more useful to the user of the financial statement. So don't feel like you have to, as Amanda said, put everything in the, in the notes. If you feel like to tell your story is more beneficial to kind of show it broken out. It's not even just the, the you know, board designated other things as well. Mm. You can still do more reporting on the face of the financial statements as long as you meet the minimum re requirements and expand upon it. That's okay. Because when you, read, when you read the standard, it's not really that clear about that. But from the guidance we've seen, you can still do that. So keep that in mind. You don't may need to make as many changes as you think by collapsing. If you really like it on the face, a lot of our clients like it, like to really have it. They, they find it's more useful. Instead of going back to look for something, you can still do that. But again, we'll work with you. Work with your team on that. Um, as you do the implementation, we can work through the changes you need to make and may not need to make. Right. You know, it may depend on, you know, some organizations have several board-designated funds. So if you have a plethora of board-designated funds, it may be that you do just want to show, you know, one amount on the face and, and have that disclosure. But again, it, it will vary from organization to organization. The second bullet really plays into um, the liquidity requirement. So just putting on paper and in your, foot, in your footnotes what limitations are on your net assets with or without donor restrictions that affect the use. So I think that will really be taken care of in the liquidity disclosure that will now be required that I previously mentioned. Okay. Reporting of expenses. So for those of you that do not currently report expenses in your financial statement by program, 
and natural class of expense. This may be one of the provisions that you know requires the, mo the most manpower, for lack of a better term, from your organization, and something that you want to start thinking about now. Because though, you know, for like we said, calendar year filers 2018, you certainly don't want to wait until the middle of 2018 and then have to go back six months and implement a allocation policy and you know, just let's be proactive about it and really start thinking about now what resources is going to entail? Does my current reporting function allow me to track expenses in this nature? And you know, could I am I going to be able to um, report expenses in this fashion? So Start, you know, when this policy, when this adoption is uh, taken on, what's going to be required is not, not necessarily on a separate statement of functional expenses, but you certainly will have to report your expenses by program and function. So program, general and administrative, as well as fundraising if that's significant to your organization. So many of you might be sitting out there saying, I already do this, so it may not be much of a change, but for those of you that don't need to do it, um, I, I encourage you to reach out to AAF CPAs and really gain some clarification on what exactly is required because we certainly can go into more detail. But you may elect to just to just disclose the expenses in your footnotes because it's not as as robust level of reporting. So it may entail less resources and level effort of your end to implement such a change. So as Matt said, the standard really provides uh, more clarity and specific detail as to what is a support function. And the previous standard uh, left some room for, uh, it was very subjective. So these are just some examples. There certainly are more, but these are just one. We wanted to provide you with some examples of what the standard would typically um, consider to be support, a supportive function, which in other words is general and administrative. There certainly, there, certainly, there certainly are more, and depending on the services your organization provides, there might be things on this list that are programmatic in nature. Place and service approach. So as Matt said earlier, currently there is different options for recognizing, recognizing unrestricted revenue for donations of uh, long-lived assets, so real property is an example, um, as well as gifts of cash to purchase long-lived assets. Um, currently, you certainly can release the monies into unrestricted, so from what is now temporarily restricted over to, your un to unrestricted revenues, when the asset is placed in service. Some people um, release the uh, resources into unrestricted over time to match depreciation expense with unrestricted revenue. Seems like a nice matching principle. That's no longer going to be required under the new standard. Now, um, what's going to happen is right when that asset is placed into service, you're going to re release the entire gift to net what is now your net assets with without donor restriction. So that might be a little bit of a change for some people in this room and might affect certain industries more than others. Um, if you have a construction project going on and you receive a, a large grant, for the um, re rehabilitation costs, it may, may be now it may per, it may uh, result into some uh, strenuous resources in terms of utilizing those funds because now you'll have to wait until the whole construction project is placed into service to move the money to unrestricted. And again, this is one of the provisions that is able to be adopted early. So if you see this affecting your organization down the pipeline, it, it should be an assessment that is had um, it, organization by organization. You may just elect to adopt this early. Underwater endowments. 
So for those of you that have endowments, uh, you know, I, we all hope that they never go underwater, but it certainly does happen given the volatility in the market. So in, currently, um, underwater endowments are reported as a deficit in your what is now called unrestricted net assets to almost make your permanently restricted net assets whole again, for lack of a better term. That's going to change. So if your uh, endowment is underwater, so if the fair value is less than the original corpus of the gift, what's now going to happen is the, the portion by which your endowment is underwater is all going to be shown netted, for lack of a better term, in your with donor restriction column. However, what is going to be required is a more robust footnote as to the original corpus of the gift, the amount by which it's underwater, the ending fair value, of your endowment, which naturally in turn gives rise to how much it's underwater, as well as the organization's policy for appropriating from that endowment when it is underwater. Um, it, you know, for those of you that have an endowment, I'm sure you know that it's allowed to appropriate from an underwater endowment should the boards deem it pertinent. It may be your organization's policy that you do not appropriate from an underwater endowment. It's just putting that policy on paper in your footnotes to your financial statements. Okay, so this is just an example of a footnote disclosure. Again, you will be, you'll receive these. I think you can already access these materials. So should you want to uh, read up on underwater endowments, we wanted to provide you the materials to do so. So statement of cash flows. There's not much change in terms of the statement of cash flows. So for just to give a little bit of background, there's two means by which you can report your cash flows, the indirect method and the direct method. The indirect method, I, in my opinion, is more commonly used. Um, that starts with your net income and then uh, reconciles uh, operating, investing, and financing activities to come up with your change in your cash. Um, the direct method does not start with net income. It truly just is cash inflows and outflows um, uh, within your organization during that year. So if you currently report uh, your cash flows using the indirect method, there is no change. You have an option to change to the direct method should you believe that that method of reporting your cash flows is, is more useful to the users of the financial statements. But if you choose to continue to report your cash flows using the uh, indirect method, no changes. If you do report your cash flows using the direct method, you no longer need to have a uh, indirect reconciliation at the bottom. So what, what used to um, be required is you used to use the direct method of reporting, but then show a, a reconciliation of operating activities to, uh, between the direct and indirect method. Again, no longer required if you do choose the direct method of reporting cash flows. We just recommend that you, know, you, just per, you, know, you just assess what means of reporting your cash flows is most beneficial to the readers in your organization. And if, what is currently, if your current method is working, no need to change. Investment return. So the change uh, as it relates to investment return is, you know, for people that have, this may affect organizations who have a very robust um, investment portfolio and have, you know, internal staff time that is directly related to managing that portfolio. Because now what can be done is you can net those expenses with the, your investment return. So this could, this, and why I say this is going to be a change, because if your organization does have a very robust uh, investment portfolio, I, it could be that previously those expenditures, that those salary expenditures and other expenditures, were being reported in, um, the, in your functionals under general administrative as a support function. So now if you move those to being netted with revenue, 
it decreases your percentage of GNA, which Josh just mentioned in his presentation that um, the lower your GNA, the more donations people tend to give to organizations with lower GNA costs. Um, and there's also the, they're eliminating the requirement to disclose your investment income by component, so unrealized gains, losses, realized gains, losses, interest and dividends. Uh, they're eliminating that requirement to disclose your, those components in your footnotes to your financial statements. So I'm going to hand it back over to Matt, and he'll talk about this phase two that's coming down the pipeline. So as I had mentioned in the beginning, the exposure draft, when it first came out, it was split into two phases, phase one and phase two. This is what got pushed into phase two. It was a couple of di different things. Um, these are topics that are very hot topics. A lot of debate about um, a lot of, um, you know, conflicting opinions about what should be required, what shouldn't be required about it. So, as I mentioned, this got pushed. It's on the agenda to be discussed at a future meeting, so we're expecting it to happen by the faculty later this year. We'll have a deliberation we've done about it. We're expecting an exposure draft to come out from that. Um, so that should be coming up relatively soon. So one of the things about that was the statement of cash flows. What they wanted to do, statement of cash flows, was kind of change the definitions of operating, investing, and financing. Um, and the feedback they got from that was, well, it doesn't really make sense to have a different reporting requirements for not-for-profit than a business enterprise. So the cash flow is a cash flow. It should be consistent amongst all the organizations that can complete a cash flow statement. So they decided to, to defer that um, to phase two. The, re the reason they wanted to do this was they felt it should align more to the statement of activities, the categories. Um, healthcare nonprofit organizations, in the past, healthcare organizations were allowed to do segment reporting, reporting the activity by segment, instead of doing it by functional classifications. Um, under the new standard right now, that's not allowed. You have to do the statement of functionals by natural and functional classification. So they're going to re-deliberate whether or not they're going to allow this for healthcare organizations. So for healthcare groups out there, this could be changing in the future. And the one area that was probably the most controversial in the entire standard, which is why it was pushed to phase two. So what the operating measure really means is showing a statement of reporting, operating versus non-operating, what's operating, what isn't. Um, and there's two categories of that. There's mission and there's availability. Mission means in the standard they were pr proposing, if it was something that was, earned, that was related to the organization's mission, it would be considered operating. So an example of this would be a capital grant. If you got out and got a capital grant to buy a building, and the building is used to run services within the organization, that would be considered an operating source of revenue, so being the operating measure. And a lot of people feel are opposed to that because they feel like, well, that's really capital. It's not really operating. It's really a long-term asset. It really should be non-operating, not operating. And that's going to be the big debate. That's going to be the real crux of the issue in phase two. Um, so stay tuned about that. We'll keep you posted if things change with that. So in the meantime, I think they felt like there should be inter inter intermediate measure. Right now, it's not defined. So right now, I could have a different, a different idea of what operating is than Amanda could have and different people can present it differently, they want to get some consistency. So right now, you can still show operating versus not operating. You have to disclose in the footnotes how you determine that distinction, but they want to get to a point where it's consistent. Um, and also with that, board designated can be shown separately as well as kind of non-operating and showing that movement on the P&L you don't have right now either. So that could be positive change. So that's going to be a big thing. Push to phase two, they really want to get these standards started moving forward. So. We'll keep you posted as, as phase two comes out in, in the deliberation 
exposure stages. Um, the next couple of slides, make sure we, we, we keep a, enough time for Nicole to do revenue rec. Um, these are just kind of summaries of the things Amanda talked about, implementation guidance. So please feel free to refer back to these. You'll have the PowerPoint outline um, at the end. The one thing I just want to point out is other considerations, kind of what can be adopted early, what can't be adopted early. So there are, there are three things you can do early without adopting the whole standard. That's the um, reporting expenses by function and classification, the place and service approach on capital revenue, and the qualitative and quantitative disclosure of liquidity. That has to get done. That can get done by itself. Everything else you can only do if you adopt the whole standard. Hi, I have a question about uh, whether or not there's any guidance out there yet on how you deal with donor advised funds in the liquidity disclosure. So in terms of how you would, um, you know, incorporate them into a liquidity disclosure and how that affects your liquidity is just really assessing do these donor advised funds, are you limited to use of these donor advised funds? And By definition, donor advised funds are unrestricted. My understanding is the way the legal um, framework for donor advised funds is that when we get the donor advised funds, they are our funds mm -hmm. and they are totally unrestricted. In reality, the odds of our using donor advised funds without a recommendation from the donor are extremely limited unless there were a true emergency. So I'm wondering, can, from a liquidity standpoint, the fact that we wouldn't touch that money, we wouldn't count it as available liquidity from a practical point of view, needs to be disclosed in one way or another? Well, I, I think the way you would handle it is it wouldn't go in as currently available, but it's something that's a resource to you that you, know, you could go to the donor with have a conversation and draw it, right? So it would be kind of fall under what you would do, like a like a line of credit in a way, or even like a board designated type of restriction, right? You would still have that as part of your policy, right? So it may not be currently available as of the balance sheet date, but it's a resource available to the organization, and then you, you would just disclose how the organization would approach it, how would you would re release it, and how would you would use it for cash flow needs. So, so that, I think you have a policy surrounding that. Yeah, so I think that would be more of your qualitative liquidity yeah. disclosure versus right. your quantitative. No, if that's the case, you would not, if, if truly economically it's truly not available to you without having this conversation with the donor, then you wouldn't include it in the quantitative disclosure of what is available to your organization within the next 12 months. But to Matt's point, you would disclose that it is certainly a resource available with these steps to be taken. If you don't say that the money is currently available, then it raises the whole question of, is it truly a, an unrestricted contribution? And therefore, I think it would be imprudent to disclose that it's unavailable from an overall perception point of view. Well, I think you have to look at the facts and circumstances and you know, with some donor revised funds, they could be more restricted than others. So I think that's a conversation to have with your team surrounding what the ramifications could be. Because from the donor funds I've seen with my clients, some are more restricted than, than others, um, and some may not be. 
So I think it does vary on the fund, the, the relationship, and the legalities of it. So I think all of that would have to be put together as part of that, that consideration. Hi. Um, as I think about receiving a $5 million grant to go into construction, and the construction is not complete at fiscal year end, and is sitting in uh, construction in progress, and I can't, and so it's a restricted donation to me. I'm thinking that if I've spent $3 million cash in the process, and I don't want to show internal borrowing because it is a restricted fund and I can't fully re um, release it until that building is put in use. I'm thinking that as I do my balance sheet by restriction, I might put that fixed asset under the temp restricted column, or now it's just going to be donor restricted column, um, and that will allow me to not have to put the the donor's cash over in that column and not show the internal borrowing. So in other words, I have, as I'm looking to fill that column for my temp restricted net asset and have enough to offset it in the asset portion, I may have the $2 million left over in cash and a $3 million fixed asset construction in progress. And now I've made whole on that and I haven't borrowed internally, and perhaps that also takes care of the liquidity concern is that I, I don't have to worry about, I've tapped into those funds. The, that remaining $2 million of cash from the donor is still set aside. It's either cash in a separate account, or it's a, a pledge receivable, or whatever it may be. I, I haven't tapped into that. Would that be correct? That's an option, because I think you haven't met the restriction yet, right? right. The issue is they're saying you don't meet the restriction until it's placed in service, therefore it's still a restricted asset, whether it's cash or whether you've swapped the cash for contract, contractor costs. Right. So I think clearly that would be appropriate to, to do. 